Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Hello, hello, hello everyone, and we are back with another episode, and I am very lucky and excited, especially excited this week, to talk to Mr. Will Butler. Will, thanks so much for being here, man. It's good to be here, Ethan. Thanks for having me. It's my absolute pleasure. Every single week, we get to talk to people with all sorts of different perspectives, and we always love to get the show rolling with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. So, a great question, and it's probably pretty circuitous. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I grew up in Auburn, Alabama, is where I'm from. Um, I dropped out of university after my first year and got a job working in Rocky Mountain National Park. Um, back in Alabama. And so I came out to Colorado for that. And, you know, since I was 19, I just really figured out how to stay and be close to, to wild places. But uh, yeah, I finished up my education, um, undergrad at University of Colorado. I uh, took a job in politics after that. So I, yeah, go buffs. I, uh, go buffs. I worked, um, yeah, studied history and political science, um, went to work for as, um, as an aide to who was then Congressman Mark Udall. He became Senator Mark Udall. Um, for, for Colorado and did that, did some work back and forth in DC, but ultimately my, my heart's here. I'm a, I'm a big rock climber. Um, and DC was way too far away from mountains. So I, I came back here. I figured out how to, how to stay here. Ultimately launched a company with a buddy. At that point we were doing, um, construction and remodeling. And it was great. Cause I could do that for three months and then jump out and go climb in Yosemite or France or whatever for three months and come back. Um, and get to work again. So I did that until the economic collapse, and uh, which was 2008, 2009. So it was just kind of like the, um, the faucet turned off at that point. And I was like, all right. Um, so I, I guess I, I had a lot to fall back on with climbing. I just went out to the desert and went climbing for a month. Um, nice. We'll, we'll figure it out. And about that point in time, I, I met a guy named Daniel Epstein, who's the uh, founder and CEO of Unreasonable Group. Um, and him and I actually started another company together, software company, before um, we started building ecosystems and the, the people around us started building ecosystems to support entrepreneurs like ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and ultimately I've been on that journey for about 12 years now, um, working, with, w- working with entrepreneurs who are addressing specifically social or environmental change. And I'm happy to talk about our work with Unreasonable and more of the model and how we got started. But yeah, yeah. I, um, I've, I've pretty much just made up jobs um, most of my life, you know, and cool, just surround myself with good people doing good things. Um, and it's, it's really worked out. I appreciate it, man. Yeah, we might as well just dive right into it because I think we'll have plenty to discuss because you and I are kind of on similar paths, I would say, when it comes to our values. Um, so what exactly is the Unreasonable Group? And then you, you mentioned you were part one of the founders. You helped the founder start the, the organization? Yeah, I started, I've, I've been working with Daniel, our founder, on several projects over the years. So mm-hmm. what is now Unreasonable Group, I'm not technically a co-founder, um, though I've, I've worked since the inception of, uh, of this project. Um, but yeah, what is, what is Unreasonable Group? Um, we started off as a organization called the Unreasonable Institute, which grew out of Boulder and grew out of, and this is where we, we lived, where we went to school. Um, and looking at a lot of what the Techstars community was doing, and they were one of the first accelerator programs in the United States. Um, and so, you know, what, Brad Feld, what um, Jared Polis, who's now our governor, you know, what their team was developing uh, to develop um, and support early stage entrepreneurial systems. Um, the concept of like 
impact focused businesses or businesses that impact was core to their business model and then scaling that growth also scaled the, the impact they could have. It's pretty nascent at that point in time. Um, so essentially what we did is look at what was happening in a lot of places in, in the tech community and say, why don't we do it over here? Um, and that got, uh, that was started, the Unreasonable Institute, the founders on that were um, Daniel Epstein, uh, Teju, Ravalotion, um, Tyler Hartung. So all, all folks who went, we all went to college together. And um, yeah, it just, that grew and grew. As, we, as we've grown up, there's also become more and more um, both accelerator programs, which is awesome. We need more of them focusing on business that are addressing impact. But one of the places in which um, we found that we could actually drive the most impact is not necessarily identifying what the next idea is, but identifying what's working um, and how we can play, an idea, play a role in scaling what's working. So a business that's impacting the lives of a million people or taking a you know, million tons of CO2 out, how do we actually scale that up to 100 million to a billion? Um, and we do that by you know, connecting them to capital. It's a big part of my job as I operate. It's yeah. a bridge between the entrepreneurial eco- ecosystem, between our entrepreneurs um, and venture capital firms, private equity groups, whatever it might be, whoever can actually sponsor them or support them in their, um, in their, in their growth targets. Uh, it's a big part of what we do. And so, yeah, the, the Institute split off into an organization now called Uncharted that continues to focus on early and idea stage companies. The reasonable group um, shifted to focus on later stage kind of growth stage companies. And um, it's been a good model. We, we partner up with major organizations, major institutions like Barclays Bank, one of the largest you know, banks in the world, um, to identify and work with companies operating in the quote unquote, green economy. So future of energy, future of agricultural system, future of protein. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's not altruism. They're, they're paying us for proximity to these kind of companies. And altruism um, isn't real. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. <laughs> totally. You know, I, uh, I, th- I think it's, you're, you're asking someone to operate outside. If you ask somebody to operate outside their self-interest, it's kind of hard to, uh, um, understand what their value system is. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah, I definitely believe in the idea of enlightened self-interest, which is doing good by others will um, innately just come back and make you feel good about yourself and then kind of inspire you to go on and keep doing that. Um, What did I want to... Let me just give you some background on me so we have some context for the conversation. So I also... You went to the University of Colorado Boulder, right? Yeah. So I went to Leeds, I studied entrepreneurship, and then I went and did some traveling and I came back and I started this business called Climate Change Realty, which is just basically like I'm a real estate agent. So I represent people on the purchase and sale of homes. But in addition to that, I actually take 50% of the commissions and donate it to organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. So that's kind of the thing behind this. Thank you. The thing behind this podcast is to figure out uh, which organizations can prove to most effectively combat the most pressing challenges of our time, which in my opinion would be something environmental environmental that affects everyone. And then eventually beyond that point, when I reach a certain like income threshold, I'm going to take the the other half and of the money. And rather than taking it for myself, I'm going to be looking for other entrepreneurs to fund their ventures and kind of train them to go through the whole startup process and get through. So that's why I thought it would be really awesome to have you guys you on and talk about your organization because you seems like you guys are a couple steps ahead of me already. So I could definitely learn a lot. But I, I guess what I wanted to ask you is, um, why, why do you think using market-based solutions would be, now I don't want to say more effective, but what, what makes you more interested in using free market approaches rather than going from the top down through like the political system to get effective change? Yeah, well, nothing exists in a silo. You know, we need both. You know, we need, we need, um, we need governments, we need NGOs, we need the, you know, the, the private sector. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I like markets is a big part of it. I understand markets. I understand, mm-hmm. um, you know, how you can um, align around goals using market forces. Um, so it, it, it absolutely works for me. I, I like business. So I like growing businesses. I like, um, you know, the types of companies we, we work with. I want them to be you know, the next titans of industry, you know, because that money then comes back into starting new companies or to investing in other businesses that are shifting the needle on um, social or environmental impact around the world. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I like, you know, market economics. I like studying it. You know, part of my political science degree was, a, you know, learning a little bit about that. Um, and it's just kind of also how the world works, you know, like whether or not mm-hmm. we, you know, that I, I'm blanking on that the president, um, president, it's probably in the 20s or 30s, but it's like the business of America's business. I mean, like government is set up to support businesses, it's set up to support entrepreneurs, it's set up to sure. support individuals. Um, and so asking government to operate outside of that is a real challenge for government. I mean, most of our government leaders, the only real metrics that they have to gauge success is jobs growth and GDP growth. You know, and that's mm-hmm. also been a little bit toxic in the Industrial Revolution as we've you know, extracted so much out of the out of the earth in order to to fuel that GDP growth. Um, but I mean, uh, going back into politics, I guess. Um, you know, Kennedy was elected on, you know, saying he could hit 5% GDP growth, right? Sure. That's what got him in office. Um, and yeah, it's all, it's all officials know what to really talk about. So if you can, if you can show a way that you can actually push growth forward while not like, um, while not being, um, while operating as a net positive to, to nature, then that's a, that's a story that we want to be a part of, that I want to be a part of. But you actually, you, you absolutely need governments to set policy to, you know, tax things that they don't want to see to incentivize things that they want to see, like incentivizing you know, solar during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. You know, um, in this administration, it's um, you know putting a halt on oil and gas leases. Let's say so. You need you need government. It's uh, it's part of it, and we we work in concert. But um, more and more, government is looking to to the business community um, to set direction. It's been really even interesting. You know, the last couple of weeks seeing so many you know, major CEOs speak out about uh, what was happening in, um, in Georgia around voting rights. Um, and it's like that actually shifts policy, you know, like the business community can affect and shift policy. And I'm, I'm all for it. Um, but it's, it's, um, I agree. yeah. And you need NGOs too. You need nonprofits. You need the organizations who are doing the original work to prove that there's a case um, yeah. so that other entrepreneurs and market forces could, you know, can come in and pass that. Yeah, we're going to do it all, man. I'm, I'm so happy to be talking to you today. Um, so let me ask you this. Is, is Unreasonable a for-profit company? We are. Yeah, we're a for-profit company. Um, cool. So what's like the revenue model? How do you guys make profit? Because obviously there's the main reason the company exists is this mission to promote good in the world and fund yeah. these organizations that are creating a positive impact. And I'm, I've tried to find a way to have a career for myself and also do the same thing. But you know, you got to get the, you got to get some sort of revenue going and the idea is to kind of uh, my idea at least is to kind of modify the market because we we are the market we decide what we spend our money on if we're spending money on things that are going to regenerate the earth and create more life rather than sucking resources away i'm all for it you know yeah absolutely um that whole concept of voting with your dollars right that each yes each absolutely is, uh, is, is essentially a vote for the way in which you want the world to be the um <laughs> um the question was around what is our revenue model 
Mm-hmm. Um, and our primary revenue model at the moment is we work with, I'll use the example of Barclays Bank. Barclays is one of our largest partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and what Barclays, they're, they're an investment bank. Um, in the United States, they're a commercial bank in, in London. London, yeah. Um, but an investment bank is a business who are, is a bank that invests in growing companies. Um, so most of the companies that like, you can't really work with an investment bank until you need to raise say north of $50 million. Um, and this bank will also, if you were, if your business were to go into public markets, whether that's traditional publics or SPACs are really hot right now, a bank like that could underwrite that process and get your company listed on the stock exchange. So we essentially are a bit of a scouting team for organizations like Barclays. We're looking at companies that have say raised around 20 million, that kind of series B, uh, or comparable um, revenue metrics. And um, yeah, so we're identifying companies like that. And possibly in the future, they may work with an organization like Barclays when they need to raise more money, when they need to go on a public market. So Barclays is paying for that proximity. Um, and what they actually pay for too, is we run these 10 day gatherings that are kind of like a TED conference that bring together world leaders, business leaders, investors um, with those entrepreneurial led businesses as the center of attention. Um, and so it's kind of, those programs are a start to a flame um, or uh, spark to a flame. So we, we build that community at that point. And then my team past that also then works to you know, support them in their capital raising needs. So that's probably 80% of our book of business comes from partnerships like with Barclays. We work with Accenture that cares about future of uh, upskilling, of jobs training, of diversity inclusion, you know, in corporate, in the corporate world. Um, and they're looking at companies uh, that are in that space as well. They invest in companies, they acquire companies, they may also bake it into their business lines that they sell to their clients, right? Um, so that's the majority of our, um, of our revenue model. And then there's ongoing support past that. Uh, probably a pitch to you to where you, when you get a little bit uh, to where you'd like to go, we also have different uh, investment vehicles. So we've recently, um, at the end of 2020, we launched a, a group called the Unreasonable Collective which is an angel investment syndicate group. And that's just for qualified investors to be able to invest directly into the types of businesses we work with. And you can write a check as low as like 10,000 up to, it doesn't really matter what it's up to, but we can then syndicate that check and invest as a group into one line item into that business's cap table. So it's a way for angel investors to get preferred access and some pretty incredible deals. And um, one company to check out, the first one we did was an organization called Air Protein, which is converting CO2 and actually developing protein out of that. Um, and that was led by Google Ventures and, and Barclays and a few other folks. So anyway, Unreasonable Collective is my pitch on that. If anyone out there is a qualified investor, um, oh, yeah, man. interested in um, you know investing in the type of businesses we work with. We also have a smaller fund looking to raise a larger fund, but uh, these are all things that are in the pipeline. This is really cool stuff, man. I'm so, I'm so glad I found you and I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I wanted to ask you next about why Unreasonable Group chooses to focus more on the growth stage of new companies rather than maybe the conceptualization, I suppose, would be like the very beginning and then like yeah. incubation. I probably would say that's what, about where my company was at. I actually was an intern for Boomtown Accelerators in town. So they work in the, the incubation stage as well, giving them some seed funding and giving them like a demo day. So the, what I got from your website is you guys are focused more on um, companies that have gotten that market validation already and helping them explode up to the next level kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so it's also, it's partner driven a little bit too. Um, Our partners can't work with early stage companies. I mean, most corporates can't work with an earlier idea stage business. Mm -hmm. So if they've got market validation, they've got traction, they've been validated by the investment community or um, customers. 
um, you know, Accenture can start saying, all right, this is a real business and how can we actually start working together? Or, you know, Barclays is an example of an investment bank, an earlier idea stage company, their bankers can't really do anything with that. They can offer up as a mentor, but they can't introduce that bank to their, uh, that product to, to their clients. The bank can't actually work with, with that business as a client. Um, so we're catching businesses kind of right at that place where they could work with major corporates. Governments also the same way. You know, governments can't work with earlier idea stage companies, but they can work with, you know, later stage ventures. Um, and so we're kind of operating as a bridge of bringing those two groups together, but hopefully right at about the right time. Really, really cool. Is there a reason you guys are based out of Boulder or is it just because you're buffs? Yeah, well, we started here. So we now have offices. Um, we're based in Boulder. We have offices in uh, New York and London. Um, awesome. and yeah, it's probably, and then people are spread throughout. So we've got folks all over the, all over the board from Myanmar to Ghana to San Francisco, you know, kind of in that, um, total, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, but just kind of fractional workplace. Um, but I would yeah. say our hubs are definitely, definitely in London. So should you find, find yourself in shortage pop in, um, I've been there. Yeah, cool. And uh, New York. And then at the moment, we don't have an office in Boulder just because everyone went digital this last year. Um, oh, I see. But we'll go back into, um, you know, physical office probably, you know, as soon as the world resets a little bit. Yeah. TikTok, TikTok should be happening any day now, hopefully. <laughs> but um, yeah, so we love to get a little bit existential on the show and talk about big picture ideas. So I, I just wanted to ask you your personal opinion about how we can use the free market to solve a massive problem like something like climate change. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a huge question. Absolutely. Um, yeah, how can we use markets to address climate change is essentially yes. your, your question, right? Um, yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of the last, last 50, 60 years kind of demonizing business. That's changing a lot. You know, like there's entrepreneurs like, um, you know, obviously the folks like um, Elon Musk and, um, you know, Jeff Bezos, people who are pushing the kind of world forward a little bit, you still demonize them, but like we don't demonize them like we did 50 years ago, let's say. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, it's just innovation can come from anywhere. Innovation can obviously come out of government research labs and come out of university labs. It can come out of the private sector. Um, and the private sector is, I mean, you can, you can see also what's, I'll, I'll use the example of SpaceX at the moment. Like NASA, NASA is essentially hiring organizations like um, SpaceX to develop moon landing systems at the moment. So government is also shifting um, from everything happening in house to like, how can we work with the private sector out there? And I think, I think that's a market trend that will, will absolutely continue. A lot of people are moving into business. I mean, business is, is cool and fun, you know, maybe more so than it was, you know, 50, 60 years ago as well, right? Like really bright minds are moving into the R&D aspects of different business. So there's, there's energy on that front. And the general just kind of shift in human consciousness is happening. We kind of yeah. recognize a little bit that we're part of a, a global ecosystem. And, you know, the internet's been a part, huge part of that. Social media has been a huge part of that. But it's not just our little our neighborhood, our community. I mean, we're starting to recognize that we're part of a global system and that one part affects the other part. Um, and yeah, I mean, I just, I like private business. I like working with private business. Um, and I think it's a, it's a trend that will absolutely, you know, continue. I think governments will still can, you know, keep, keep funding, um, you know, private startups. An example would be, um, you know, there's an organization that we've supported out of, out of Vancouver um, called General Fusion. They're working on the fusion of like fusion technology. And they've Nuclear got fusion? 
nuclear fusion. Yeah. Amazing. Um, and they're getting a lot of money from sovereign wealth funds around the world. Um, a lot of the kind of big ag companies that we're working with are like getting major grants, whether it's from USDA or, you know, the Canadian equivalent. So yeah, governments are working with, with private business. And it's, I think, I think it's a lot of the tip of the spear. Um, and I think you know, there's back and forth between government and uh, private research, but I think we're going to be defaulting more to, to private as we, as, mm-hmm. as things progress. Um, and yeah, I, my, my hope is, I mean, we, you know, I, I, you know, we don't need to get into like optimism or pessimism necessarily, but I, I think, you know, a Maybe lot later. of the major innovations the next year will come out of the private sector. Yeah. Amen to that, man. I hope so. Cause they're, they're able to move very quickly and have a lot less centralized control, which is one of the things I like. That's actually, that's what I love about being an entrepreneur is I literally, I, I have my own limits. I can, I only limited by what I can see as my own potential. And I have no boss or manager telling me how to do what I need to do. It's just critically thinking, hitting into a wall, looking up and being like, okay, how can I get past that wall next time? But I'll say this. Well, I can, I can see why private businesses like working with you, man, your positive energy comes through the zoom very, very, obviously. So um, I'll tell you this, the mission statement behind my company is to create a business oriented solution to the most pressing challenges of our time so that future generations can focus on the distinct challenges of their time. And the way I've come to that conceptualization is by looking into the work of Simon Sinek very deeply and coming up with a, a just cause. So that's like my just cause for my business. Now it's very ambitious and crazy, but that's kind of just what my personality is like. So what I wanted to ask you is that when I mention the most pressing issues of our time, what comes to mind in your head? Well, just really quick before I jump into that, um, you know, it's not actually super different from what our, our mission as an organization is, which is- I'm not to, surprised. Yeah, yeah, it's to drive resources into and break down barriers for entrepreneurs solving BFP, so big freaking problems. Yep. Um, I should probably just pull it up so I don't mess it up, but pull yeah, up, our man. vision is to create a world in which the most values, uh, our vision is to create a world in which the most valuable and influential companies of our time are those that are solving humanity's most most pressing problems. I love um, it. Yeah. So to actually like move in a direction to where, yeah, business is solving those problems, that entrepreneurs are solving those problems. Um, and entrepreneur defined kind of quite broadly, whether that's private, public, but the people who are see a better world and, and rallying resources around making mm-hmm. it happen. Um, your your question, can you can you ask it one more time? I just got caught up in the, the Yeah. I mean, I've been diving into pressing issues. I started by looking at the world through the lens of climate change. And as I've talked to more and more environmentalists, I know I've talked to some people who don't like how much the uh, economy is overgrowing. And they think that that's why we're depleting all our resources and we'll run out. I've talked to people who are very concerned about the CO2 levels. And me personally, uh, I got very into mass extinction was getting me very concerned. So I'm trying to figure out uh, how to, you know, how to be the most effective. My idea was by donating money to organizations that fight climate change, I'd be able to help every everyone at once with my skill set of sales and personality kind of thing. So yeah. I just wanted to ask what, what BFPs are you most passionate about or are on top of your mind when, when you're working? It's a, it's a great question. Um, and yeah, species extinction is a huge one. Since 1970, the last 50 years, we've got about 30% of the species, you know, the animal species on this planet as we did 50 years ago. So it's like, Terrible. it's just, it's, it's horrendous. The challenge with people is that people adapt quickly. You know, you're not interacting in the rainforest. You're not up in, um, you know, looking at glaciers for the most part. We mostly concentrate in cities um, and what's happening out there we're not exposed to. So um, my hope is that, you know, that, that that shifting that's changing, but still like, that's a real thing. You can be optimist or pessimist, but like 
we've got um, we got 30% of the species, the animal species on Earth that we did 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's a huge BFP. Um, the things I'm most excited about at the moment, I am I am most excited about a general shift in human consciousness around like supporting others um, and supporting the growth of others. So you, we can even just talk about you know what's happening you know, um, in racial issues in America. Like I grew mm-hmm. up in the American South. Like we, we could go deep into like, you know, the world in which I saw and which I grew up in probably another sure. time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think the shift in like, how do we recognize the trauma and what we've done to, you know, communities of color um, to, you know, how women have not had, um, you know, have not been playing on the same playing field as men. That kind of shift of the people in power, which is folks like, you know, it's historically been people like yourself and myself, like white mm-hmm. men, right? Mm-hmm. That shift of like recognizing we need to, a rising tide raises all ships, right? Like not, it's not just good for them. It's good for me and like future generations to come up in a more egalitarian society. So that shift in consciousness, you know, as people, we support people first, you know, the environment and those kind of things can sometimes be a little bit like hard to actually wrap your head around. But my, sure. my hope is that in supporting, you know, people, which is really hot right now, right? Like things that are happening, right? That's where the energy is. Um, that transfers over into um, into to our animal communities, to you know how we produce agriculture, um, how we think about uh, resources, how we extract resources, how we repurpose in the circular economy. I think it's a, it's a rising tide, and I know environmentalists at some point are kind of irritated that we're focusing more on like social issues at the moment. But I everyone's I think irritated all the time. All this, <laughs> it's whatever, I man. Think it's all the same, right? Um, yeah. And that, that's my hope. So the energy right now is super hot on, you know, diversity and inclusion. Um, and I, I think that'll continue. We've got a long ways to go on that. Um, and my hope is that that same energy of like supporting others extends past just people um, into, uh, into the greater world, into the, you know, um, the earth as a whole, because it's the only one we got. How many siblings do you have? I have two. I have a brother and a sister. They're both younger than me. Yeah, you seem like like a big family man. I appreciate it. Um, I've got a I've got a twenty month old uh, baby boy as well who might like interrupt us at some point in time. There's there's the beaming energy. He, he doesn't yeah. need sleep. <laughs> um, I wanted to quickly ask you, what do you think about the role of we talked about it a little bit before the role of nonprofit organizations versus these these for profit organizations? Because I have gone back and forth between making my business uh, a full nonprofit or being having some sort of profit incentive. Uh, it's it's something that's swirled through my head, but I've I've, I've come to the conclusion that that kind of just staying market focused allows me to have a more robust system where if I I can hit these metrics, I can accomplish something, and then I can it doesn't matter. I will, that does matter. I will give away most of my money, but it, it'll it'll just be like a a not profitable business for a while, if that makes sense. Which I think yeah. it's just it's interesting. I just wanted to get your thoughts on the distinction between the roles of these two type of, separate types of entities. Well, I think it's up to the individual like yourself to make decisions on how you want to allocate your resources, right? Sure. Like, um, I, I also donate to nonprofits. I think they're they're critical. I mean, like we have you know last summer here in Colorado, we had all the fire destruction in, in Grand Lake. You know, I, I donated a you know, chunk of my income um, to supporting those families. I mean, like business forces aren't really necessarily going to address that out of the out of the gate if they need like mm. shelter and water and like kind of basic human needs. Um, yeah, my my mother works at a, a center that supports um, young women who are 
um, essentially dis disenfranchised, right? They've been kicked out of their homes. They're, they would be on the street otherwise. Like, there's not really a business model uh, to support that. So the nonprofit community is, is critical. They address issues that markets can't really address mm. or that markets are unwilling to address yet. So let's say off-grid electrification in Western Africa. Like for-profit business isn't just going to go into there, right? They're going to, or like the big corporations aren't just going to go into there out of the gate. But there's there's players who can go in and kind of experiment. You know, they'll well, get, Chinese might. Chinese, Chinese corporations might, like, might, yeah. Yeah, but they'll get, typically, you know, they'll get dollars from grant dollars to kind of explore if there's a market there. Um, and if they actually can prove a market, then more money comes in behind that. So I think nonprofits have a really play an important role in opening up markets as well as addressing the issues that um, you know for profits or you know, traditional markets can 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 affect. So Thank yeah, big big thing. One's not better than the other. I just I tend to my my energy and my work is in is in for profit um, for profit. Yeah, businesses. and your energy and work is awesome, and I appreciate that perspective a lot. That, that definitely gives me something to think about when I'm not hosting the show. I'll have to come back and listen to what you just said. I wanted to ask you next. What are some of the most influential corporations that you're aware of that are currently working in the climate space? Because obviously that's kind of the stuff that I'm most interested in. Yeah, it's a good question. And it like well, might be obnoxious to some of your viewers, but like, I mean, <laughs> our, our model is we work with the biggest corporations in the world and we recognize that things don't shift on a dime. Like we look at it like, like a battleship or a big shift. Like if we can play a little role in like tilting the way in which they think about the future of their business or the types of organizations they might work with or the types of people that might be attracted to come and work with them, like we can shift that a little bit. Um, and it's incremental, it's incremental change. They're not just going to all of a sudden, a large bank isn't going to just put all their money into businesses that are pulling CO2 out of the atmosphere, right? But mm -hmm. if you can show a model or, you know, a model for that, they may start investing in those types businesses, right? Like they may introduce those type of businesses to their clients. And so, you know, as people, we have really kind of short-term, we have like monkey brains. We want things to happen right away, but things don't happen right away, which is a real challenge when you're addressing like climate change, which is like happening right now. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I mean, we work with some of the players that, you know, have done some of the bad stuff. Like Shell is a big partner of ours. They're also mm -hmm. a huge like funder of, um, the types of businesses we work with, they invest Absolutely. in. Um, I'll give an example, a super cool company called uh, Lonza Tech. They uh, started a new, co new company called Lonza Jet. And what Lonza Tech does is they take the off-gas emissions from steel mills, from coal plants or whatever, and they've developed a process that can convert that into jet fuel. So that jet fuel has been used to, they now have partnerships with, um, with BA, with British Airlines, with Virgin, doing cross-country or cross um cross pond, like uh, international flights with this circular jet fuel. So like this would have gone up and just gone away, but like they've captured it and they've created a new jet fuel and like are able to actually run that. And Shell's a big investor in that. Suncor's a big investor in that as well. So the, these companies that are legacy historic companies, which have been a huge part of the extractive economy, they're, they're in the they're not oil companies. They're in the they're in the energy business, right? Like they recognize if they're going to stay in the long term, if they're going to continue to profit, that they've got to change with the times. Not everybody's like that. Like you know, examples of Exxon have like just tripled down on oil and gas. But a lot of the a lot of the major um, uh, players out there in the in the ONG space are investing in 
carbon capture technologies, uh, and future of energy organizations. Same goes for future of food. Like we work with companies such as Memphis Meats, which is a cell-based meat company. So essentially they're creating meat um, that, that was never a sentiment being. So it's like a burger patty that grew in the yeah, yeah. Um, And, you know, there's an ick factor to that right out of the gate, but that can change, right? And, but the people, I don't know if I'm like able to say who's invested in it, but a lot of the big ag meat companies, et cetera, are primary investors in those businesses because they recognize they may put them out of the chicken business. Right. Or they may put them out of like where they do money right now and they need to be primary investors in whatever that is moving forward. So I, yeah, the awesome. big company, yeah, the big companies that don't just see themselves as like, this is our product and this is going to be our product forever, that we are in the protein production business or we're in the energy business and we need to shift wherever those markets are going to. Um, so I think it'll be, you know, some, some of the big players will go out and some of the emerging players will become, you know, the, the shells and the GEs or whoever of the future, but most of them aren't going anywhere. Most of them will continue to, um, you know, play a major role and we'll, we'll be able to do that by identifying new technologies um, and shifting with markets. Yeah, for sure. That's yeah, that's a really good response. And it's, it's all about um, like we kind of hinted at earlier, like having, having a vision for the business is the way to get it to succeed, to have some kind of meaning behind it besides just driving profit. Cause that's what will, I don't know what will keep it going. What will keep the pioneering success forward is having like a true purpose behind the company. And that's the idea of like the infinite game is that you just got to stay in the game. If, if you were, if you're in the energy business and everyone's using oil and now oil's out of style, if you want to stay in the game, you got, you got to adapt or adapt or die, you know? Yeah, so and, and profit's cool, right? Like looking profit's great. Looking <laughs> at that bank account feels good, right? Like we all like so much value win. to the world. If you, if you make money in theory, <laughs> Yeah, it's important. And it also attracts people of our generation to work to these type of companies. Mm. Like they don't want to just go home and say they work for an organization that's doing X, Y, Z, right? That's, you know, tar sands, whatever it might be, right? Like mm. people won't, our generations in particular want to be more connected to the work and to the overall impact that that work is having. Mm. Um, and it's one of the first generations is actually willing to work at a discount um, in order to work in companies like that. Mm. Um, so it's, I, my hope is that they don't have to work at a discount. Like I hope that that like shifts to being like more kind of core business or core function of an organization. Um, but yeah, if you want to attract great talent, you need to people rally around your mission, your vision as an organization, you know, salaries are important, you know, being able to make your mortgage is important. Um, but it's not what gets us up to go to work. No kidding. So can you tell me a bit about the unreasonable impact world forum seems like a big event that you guys put on. Yeah, it is. So we do that. Um, well, typically every year, uh, we bring right. <laughs> specifically that one's with all of our companies that are operating in the green economy that are part of the, the Barclays event that we do. Sweet. And we run, yeah, we run, I was speaking about these 10 day gatherings that we do. We do each of those. We do one in Asia Pacific. We do outside of Singapore. We do one outside of London each year for uh, UK and European entrepreneurs. And we do one in upstate New York for companies that are operating in the Americas, primarily um, uh, Canada and the United States. And so every year we bring those, those businesses together for the Unreasonable World Forum, which is essentially, a, it's a place for knowledge sharing. It's a place for connection. So if an entrepreneur in the United States is looking to move into China or Singapore or wherever it might be, they're able to develop relationships with businesses on the ground. Um, it's a way of you know, it's kind of a TED style event as well. We do have like a half day that brings together a lot of the investment community um, in, in Europe. 
Um, and there's big presentations of each of what those companies are doing. So the hope is to be able to drive resources through um, exposure um, to the investment community's exposure to the businesses in which they're doing. Um, but that's only a day. We then go out onto kind of offsite for two days and it's, it's really just workshopping, you know, have collaboration. Uh, this year, we'll also do about $2 million in grants through our partners to help Sweet. spur um, the, you know, spur collaborations between teams um, and develop new products, move into new markets, et cetera. So yeah, we've been really, I don't know if lucky is the right word, lucky is the right word to find partners um, that buy into what we're doing or, and are willing to like, you know, support that with both their time um, with, you know, some truly brilliant people that work in those businesses as well as their dollars. That's awesome, man. I'd love to be a part of it. When is the event planned for this year? So it's, I don't know if it'll be this year, you know, so right, like, uh, right. yeah, London's like just getting out of the lockdown parts of mm -hmm. Europe are still in like full on lockdown. So yeah. I think our whole year switched from in-person gatherings to, to digital events. So we've done mm -hmm. all of our work in the digital space, um, which has worked really well. Um, actually it's, it's given us the ability to bring companies in that may not have come in otherwise, because a 10 day commitment to come into a thing is a huge commitment. Usually that takes like board approval or, you know, let's say you're a, working mother CEO, you know, like you're already strapped for time. And then I'm asking you to step away from like home and your team for 10 days to like, think about the business and, you know, how you can grow yourself as a CEO. It's just sometimes a really hard pitch. So uh, in the switch to digital, rather than 10 day events, these have become like three month events that people kind of call in from. Um, and we've been able to attract a lot more um, female led businesses uh, and growth stage businesses that may have not all uh, participated in our events previously. So I think when we reset, there'll probably be a combination of like a little bit in person is that like physical community is still really important for developing relationships, but a lot of it will continue to be uh, continue to be digital. Um, and I, I like that because I've got a family too, like stepping away and like going to the other side of the world oh, for two weeks. Yeah. The thing is, is it, yeah, I love it. I get a lot of energy from it, but I'm in a different stage of life now too, where I, you know, want to be home and support my wife and, um, in the infants, a lot of work. Yeah. And that's what's most important in life. I think is the relationships you have with uh, the people closest to you. So it's really important, but it's nice to have some sort of, um, you know, fulfillment in your work, some sort of big purpose that you're leading towards. But yeah, the, I, I really, I'm a big, I'm a big uh, advocate of focusing on interpersonal relationships. I wanted to ask you for a personal piece of advice as we're getting to the end here, since you're, you're involved in all these uh, businesses that are working on, as we described, what do we call them? BFPs, or I call them grave problems. How do you, you seem like a very positive person, which I love. And that's usually how I uh, project myself to others and how I'm always trying to look at the bright side of everything. But when I, when I dive into the weeds of, of these issues, it can get very overwhelming. So I wanted to ask you how to keep a positive outlook when you're considering these problems almost on a daily basis, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. You call them grave problems. Jim Collins calls them big, hairy problems or whatever, right? Like mm -hmm. um, how do you stay out of the weeds? How do I not go to bed stressed out that a company's about to run out of cash in two months and about to have to lay off after a workforce? It's a challenge, man. You know, like it's, it's, it's really hard. I have to set there's only so much I can do. Right. And, and there are other important aspects of my life, you know, so I, there is, I've, I've got my family, I've got, I'm a big biker and fly fisherman. Um, so like being outside and connected to nature is like critically important. I have like three pillars of like my work, my time outside and my family. And when they're all in balance is when I'm most in balance. So I'm, I'm not my, I am of service to no one. If I'm at like, in a ball word that the world is like, you know, moving towards collapse, 
right? Yeah. Like that might, I don't think that that's the case. I think we'll get to a place where humans are operating as a uh, either net positive or even regenerative to nature. What I worry about is what we've done to the world before that, um, you know, to get to that point. But humans are also super adaptable. We have a concept, there's a concept of hedonic treadmill, which essentially is we, you, if you, if you won the lottery and started flying private, you'd get used to that really quick. If you got in trouble somehow and ended up in prison, you'd actually get used to your prison cell pretty quick. So humans are super adaptable, which is like good and possibly how we've, you know, become the predominant species here. Sure. But it's also bad as it relates to environmental degradation. We'll get used to our container of like a world that's more degraded than it used to be. 1970 being like, we've got 30% of our species lost. Right. Um, So I worry about those things, but it's, yeah, I, what I get up and do my work is because I like to be surrounded. We talked about this earlier. I like to be around people that inspire me around ideas that inspire me, that are people that are willing to fail, that are willing to experiment, that see failure as like um, a learning opportunity that you can shift that and apply that somewhere else. Um, So I I get my energy from that. I I'm certainly, you know, I'm certainly nervous about the world of what 50 years will look like. Mm -hmm. There's not, it's not, for me, it's not, it's not worth worrying about um, like on the day to day, because it would, it would keep me from doing the work of moving forward. So like recognizing that I want the world to be a better place, to be a cleaner place, you know, um, to where humans are operating in, um, in harmony with nature and the different systems in which we build. But that's kind of my North star, but I, yeah, I can't let it just cripple me on all the other things that are happening at the moment. I can focus on what's in front of me um, and do that. And that's, that's work for me because yeah, it's easy to fall into, um, not the right word, but yeah, um, yeah, it's easy yeah. to fall that if you let yourself. And a lot of environmentalists and a lot of activists, um, they they moved in that. And then you know, their work is, you know, it's not pushing forward on that world in which they were hoping to develop at first. So I don't know. I don't know if that's an answer for you, but it is. It is an answer, man. I mean, it's as simple as you, you either get busy living or get busy dying. So you got you got to keep going. You got to keep moving forward. And honestly, like you said, it it is a challenge, but. If it wasn't as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you can appreciate this. If it wasn't a challenge, it wouldn't be fun, would it? Well, I mean, like that's that's the beauty of challenges is like entrepreneurs don't look at challenges. They look at challenges as opportunities. Absolutely. So, the you know, the folks who like or yeah, I don't even probably even need to say more than that. Like that a lot <laughs> of what the world looks at is like this is terrible. Entrepreneurs see, you know, uh, a model. They see an opportunity. They see a, a possibility of addressing that. And those are the kind of people I like working with. And it's a, it's a joy to get to do so. And this has been an extremely joyful podcast for me as well. I really appreciate you coming on. My last question is, what advice do you have for a young entrepreneur like myself or someone who's just getting started in the business world from you? From yeah, I mean, it's, it's, basic. Yeah, it's basic. I mean, like, but, you know, figure out who you want to be in five, 10 years and like identify those type of people as mentors, right? Like you, we, need, we need that, you know, and like it could also, it could, it, even if it's not like externally, you know, your mentor could be yourself in five years, like, but just identify who that person is. Uh, and that's a effing hard thing to do. So it's mm-hmm. not, it's not simple advice. Um, but yeah, rally people around you who believe in you and believe in your vision, you know? Um, and I'm, I'm a firm believer that we are, you know, a collection of the people we surround ourselves with. Um, so when you talk about me being joyful, I don't necessarily see that, but like, I do know <laughs> that I surround myself with like joyful people who see opportunity and challenge. Um, and so maybe I'm a collection of that. So surround yourself with the type of people that 
you want to be with in the world and who, you know, will bring you to the place in which you want to be and externally go out and look for those people too. Um, and, you know, make a formal ask of like, I'm looking for mentors. You know, I, I, I would need, I need some support in this. Um, and the last bit is like, it's okay for yourself to be your own mentor too. Like identify mm-hmm. who you would like to be and um, figure out how you get there. Yeah, man. I have this idea of like the ultimate self and, and it's, it's like an, it's an ideal. It's not something you can ever reach, but it's about this idea. It's again, the infinite game, always trying to become better, be a better version of yourself. And I think the key for me advice to people who are trying to get started is to, before you, you go into like any sort of group or organization or mentorship, really get introspective and look through your past and look at the, the moments in your life that have brought you the most either pain or pleasure, the most emotional experiences. And I think that those really define your character so i think that's really powerful um thing for people to do so will will man thank you thank you man it's been a real pleasure today it's been a joy a joy talking to you <laughs> yeah Ethan, I've, I've really enjoyed it as well man it's uh it's interesting i speak directly to our ceos in the companies we support but i rarely talk in, on a high level about my work so this was a gift for me and i uh yeah i appreciate connecting with you and thanks for uh, thanks for having me on you're very very welcome all right everyone we'll see you next week take it easy Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate, the official podcast of Climate Change Realty. If you are very passionate about these issues and you know anyone considering buying or selling a home anywhere in the USA, then please visit ccrboulder.com today.